I remember the day that I became a political person. It was November 9th or 10th, 2016, and I was in my car driving to a spa to get a facial, and I was crying. The reason I was crying, friends, is because the United States of America had just elected Donald Trump as their president, and suddenly the political had become personal. This thing that I thought didn't affect me, that I didn't care about, that I didn't know about, was suddenly making me cry. And that's when I realized I need to find out more about politics and I need to get personally involved. Fast forward to 2019, and in Australia we've just re-elected a Liberal government, Scott Morrison's government, and a lot of us are wondering what the hell happened. So in a very timely fashion, we're talking to Georgie Purcell today. Georgie is a young politician who works for the Animal Justice Party in the Victorian Parliament. She's an activist and she is going to talk to us about young people in politics and how they can get involved in a more meaningful and less scary way. Reproductive rights, the climate election, the rise of right-wing governments across the world, religion and politics. It's a jam-packed episode and we're talking about a lot of interesting things. Look, politics is a tedious topic at the best of times, but Georgie talks about it in a way that makes sense to somebody that doesn't know what's going on. So listen on, friends. This is very important. This is Amrita, and you're listening to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Hi, Georgie. Hey, I'm Ruta. Welcome to Heckin' Concern Podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm very excited because I have a viral video sensation sitting in front of me right now. <laughs> you are the lamb lady. That's right. Yes, I um, have lambs that went somewhat viral on the internet. That's amazing. How does it feel to be viral? Um, I mean, I didn't realize how much they would take off. It was like such a bizarre feeling. I still get media requests from all around the world. Um, just last week they were printed in a German magazine actually. So, but the thing that I love the most is actually my sister-in-law is a primary school teacher and apparently primary school kids are all about the YouTube and video views at the moment. So she loves to go to school and tell them that she's got a friend who has like 16 million views on a video. So I'm like the most popular person among her students, which is so funny. That is hilarious (laughs) also because kids understand things like views and like millions of views is a good, like what kind of, what is happening to children? They live for the views, the kids. And I think the thing I love the most about it was this story took off because it seemed bizarre and unusual that I had these lambs living in my house while Mm. I raised them. Um, but it really gave people a, a insight into, I think, their like individual personalities of them. So yeah. that's why that's why I agreed to do it. Yeah, I, it's so wonderful that you've done that. And your lambs have also been on billboards across Australia. Yeah, yeah, and they've been on TV ads as well. So oh. yes, they're sort of uh, they're like my child actors. Oh. <laughs> How many do you have now? Sixteen. And are they now fully grown sheep? Fully grown, and um, we're going to have to cap it at sixteen at this stage mm. because we've we've got. Uh, seven acres and it's full of full of sheep so (laughs) wow and look they have such cute personalities I see them like stalking you outside the house sometimes yes it's so cute yeah they're adorable um so now can you tell them all apart oh yeah so people come over and they're always like how can you tell who's who and it's like how can you not they all look so different to me I guess it's sort of all 16 of them look different totally different like I've never ever accidentally confused them they just 
the features are also different to myself and my husband Ward. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's like a parent thing though. Like yeah, you know yeah. how you see babies and they all look the same, but to the parents they all look different. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and are they all male and just male or female or are they mixed? No, there's a mixture, but they're uh, D sex. So yeah, yeah. definitely no lambs happening in our house. <laughs> <laughs> but you must miss like their lamb stages. I do. I miss it so much. I we would do it again uh, just to foster and then move them on to forever homes, but our conditions sort of our, our lives have changed a bit since we first got them and fostering is around the clock work and raising them like in the first few weeks of life they need bottles every two to three hours and I could commit to that in my old job but I can't anymore yeah so, yeah. yeah but yeah I really miss having them as little babies they're, they're adorable <laughs> oh my god so cute and I missed out on cuddling them yeah. when they were babies but I'm- you can still cuddle them as adults if yes. you ever want to come and cuddle one. Oh, I will. They love it. Um, and you also have six cats? Five cats. Five cats. Three um, dogs. Three dogs and two horses. And two horses. Yeah. I've forgotten your horse's name. I met him once. Yeah, Alfie is the Alfie, one you met. And yes. I've also got Dudley. So, Aww. yes, it's um, it keeps us busy. <laughs> you are like this amazing pioneer woman. <laughs> I mean, but like you literally have it all. You've got this beautiful life on a farmland and then you come to the city and you're like this high power like (laughs) you know political person yeah yeah so I feel it's so funny people always say to me like how do you fit it all in and it's like I I actually don't know I just make it work yeah how old are you I'm 26. I'm, Get out of here. Yeah, I'm turning 27 in July. Man, <laughs> when I was 26, I was a potato. <laughs> <laughs> I still am a potato somewhat. Potato in some senses. <laughs> well, that makes me feel a little bit better. Thank you for, for you know, knocking yourself down if you're not just for my sake. Um, and also your uh, wedding was recently featured in like multiple newspapers. Yeah, so... Um, <clears throat> My family always joke that, like, I can't do something without making it political or some form of activism, which is exactly what I did with our wedding. So we had this wedding that was uh, completely vegan and, like, a lot of focus on sort of, like, sustainable, um, like, packaging and environmentalism and uh, all the other things we believe in. And it just so happened that afterwards a journalist found out about it and contacted me and was like, I want to cover your wedding Um it was actually after veganism was a bit of a buzzword because some big protests happened in Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, so she wrote this story about it, which was actually, I I was really happy with it. It's always a little bit scary giving something to news.com.au. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, they did yeah. a great job of it. So That's so good that you, you know, you, you were able to um, see a good result out of that story and not some kind of shock tactic, especially because that Dominion rights march was so divisive like australians hated yeah. it yeah some that's people right. hated it but saw the point some people hated it and thought we were all a bunch of idiots yeah that's right and i was just really happy to be able to get a positive piece of media about veganism in that climate and i think the climate is still sort of ongoing i yeah. think it's going to be this way for a while so good on you yeah thank you i, I think it is ongoing because uh the green senator Marion Faruqi is talking yep. a lot about animal rights and That's right. uh, you've got a lot of international like film stars and stuff talking about eating less meat and sustainable lifestyle so people are not just vegans but people that are not vegan as well are hearing about it and starting to like think about it positively yeah that's right it's i think that the reason that it is sort of creating this divisive climate at the moment is because it's at that stage where 
it's a big thing. And for a long time, like you and I went vegan quite a while ago, people just didn't care. And now I think that so many people are going vegan or, you know, flexitarian or considering their food choices. There's always going to be that pushback when it becomes, yeah. you know, from the people who don't agree with it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's confronting. Like, okay, I have, I, I know I've told you this before, but uh, I'll tell you again that you uh, are the reason I became a vegan. So I was a vegetarian all my life. Um, well, mostly starting from age six or seven onwards. And um, my mom was a vegetarian as well. So coming from, a, and my sister too. So coming from a largely vegetarian family, uh, but I always thought vegans were extreme strange hippies and it was very confronting for me every time I read like articles that said we don't need mammalian milk anymore after we're sort of grown up and this is how animals are treated in factory farms dairy eggs and I just didn't want to read that even though I was a vegetarian but I couldn't imagine giving up dairy and eggs and I would say things like veganism is unnatural yep and then I met you and Ward and I was like God, these guys are cool. <laughs> and and then we started talking um, and I was like, oh, man, I am so like, I need to become a vegan now. Yeah. Um, and you really were the, it, it was not shame. What It was more inspiration that there were these young people, they were cool, they were smart, they were driven and they were vegans and they were not strange hippies or yeah. uh people that were out of touch. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's funny you say that because I was vegetarian for a long time before I went vegan as well. And I used to say the exact same thing. And I think sometimes that uh, resistance is even stronger from vegetarians than it is meat eaters because you, you for the most part, go vegetarian for ethical reasons. So mm. you, you already care and it's confronting to know that you might not be doing all you can. Yeah. And uh, you, you want to help animals, but it's it seems like a bigger change. And I remember saying to people, oh, yeah, I'm a vegetarian, but I'd never go vegan. Like mm. vegans are really weird and it's too far and it's too extreme. And then I had the same thing. I, it was just it ended up happening for me and it just sort of made sense. But I think everyone goes through that stage of saying they'll never be vegan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was also harder to become vegans when we did. Oh, for sure. Like, the products on the market were so terrible. And yeah. I remember the first year of eating really crap food. I mean, luckily, I'm, I'm Indian, so in a lot of Indian home cooking is already very vegan. Yeah. Uh, and my family was extremely supportive. But I just remember feeling a little deprived of all of my favorite foods. Yeah. But now the market is amazing for vegans. Yeah, yeah. It's. I just feel like, so I've been vegan for, I think, like eight or nine years now. And I just feel like the past two to three years have been incredible. Like I never mm. thought I'd see the day where Hungry Jacks and La Porchetta, yeah, and, and Domino's, Domino's, McDonald's in some parts yeah. of the country. Grilled now has Beyond Burgers, right? Uh, Unilever companies like Magnum are releasing, yeah, uh, and, and, and Ben and Jerry's are releasing uh, at servos, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it feels like that's. I know that veganism isn't just about food. It's about sort of, you know, it's a lifestyle. But when you go vegan, the, f the thing you think about most is food. Yeah. And I think it really removes that barrier of making it hard or difficult. It's like now you could live regional and not find it too hard with what's going on in Coles and Woolies and BP and, mm. and chain stores. So. Yeah. Yes, it is so amazing. You can find fries products. You can find um, 
vegan mayonnaise yeah. you can like everything yeah. um so you went vegan you went vegetarian at a very young age yeah how old were you um so i was <clears throat> i i can't remember exactly how old i was i feel like i was just about to start grade prep or already in grade prep mm. and it just was uh, a pure coincidence that I was riding my bike. I lived in a rural town. Uh, last I checked a few years ago, I think the population there was 800 people in the town. Wow. So it was it was small, even smaller then. And uh, it was a farming town and I was on crossing the highway with my mum and I saw a truck and the truck had pigs in it. And I said to my mum, Oh, where are they going? And my parents, and I love them for it, were never the sort of people that would tell me a lie to protect me. They would tell me the truth and and uh, let me do with it what I wanted to, um, which I think is really great. And they, they told me that uh, that's where meat came from. And I loved animals so much as a kid, and I still do. And I just said, I don't want to do that anymore. And my parents said, okay, that's fine. Um, so I was vegetarian for a long time. I did go back to eating meat in high school, which I feel like is a really common thing among mm. like vegetarian kids. It was like a peer pressure thing. Um, I always felt like I didn't want to do it, but I'd go off on school camps or hang out with my friends or go have dinner at my you know friends' houses and their parents would cook for me. And I got sick of being like the weird vegetarian friend. Yeah. Uh, but that was really short lived. And by the time I was 18 and at uni, I'd yeah. gone vegetarian again and then quickly vegan. So I think I always had it in me. Yeah, oh, like you were a little Lisa Simpson. Yeah, I so was. Yeah, I've actually got Lisa Simpson tattooed on my leg. Because, Do you? Uh, yeah, I relate with her so much. A soy-based snack will calm me down. Yeah, yeah, oh that's my one God. of my favourites. <laughs> um, but it was so amazing that your family was supportive. Yeah, they were awesome. And I mean, like I said before, they always joke that I can't do anything and not make it political. And I, I've always been like that, like... I didn't just go vegetarian. I went like vegetarian and I told everyone about it. So I'd like go along to school and I'd tell the kids where meat came from. Their parents probably hated me. Um, But I just, you know, I've always been one of those people that when I believed in something, Mm. I had to do something about it. Mm. So, yeah, I was definitely very, uh, yeah, strong-minded about my choice at the time. That's amazing. And like it's not a surprise now seeing where you are and what you've done yeah um but okay but going back so how was your family's um political sort of leanings as when you were a kid were they left leaning so I grew up in a house which probably sounds weird now because it feels so common to talk about it but I remember growing up in a house and my parents said to me you don't ask people who they vote for it's really rude but we'll talk to you about it. And um, so that's sort of when they started talking to me about politics and, yeah, definitely left-leaning, uh, strongly, like, passionate about things like uh, refugees and asylum seekers, uh, environmentalism, um, you know, all the all the stuff that I still believe passionately now. And I think because they spoke with me openly about it, um, that's sort of how I became thinking about it so young, yeah. Mm. Um, my family was... Um, never really that political. I mean, my parent, my dad watched the news obsessively when I was yeah. a kid, and they knew all about politics. But I felt like I didn't have any political education yeah. when I was growing up. I always thought I don't know anything about politics, and I don't care about it. It doesn't affect me. Um, I'll vote because it's my responsibility. But I was confused, and when I came to Australia, I was 15 years old, and 
I felt so out of place that Australian politics was the last thing, you know, a field largely dominated by older white men. I was like, that really doesn't, you know, um, talk to me in any way. But I wish that I had had, like you, a politically aware upbringing. Yeah, and I think that, like, my (coughs) – it just was so normal for us because – my parents never uh, shielded me from the news and they always listened to talkback radio. So I would know what was going on in politics and like had my own views on it. And, um, you know, my auntie was, this is when I'm in high school, but I looked up to my auntie a lot and she was working for Julia Gillard. Um, Oh, what did she do? She was an advisor to her and, um, and including when she was prime minister. So I just thought she was, she was young and awesome and, engaged in politics and particularly passionate about women in politics, like our first female prime minister. And I just remember thinking like, that's really awesome. And Mm. I wanted to consume more of it as well. But you're so right about not um, identifying with politics because I think a big issue with um, politics still, like you say, like older white men uh, making our laws in the country that are often sort of out of touch with with what the you know general population agrees in um, is that young people just don't see themselves in politics and you know you can't be what you can't see and young people are actually increasing more with political issues but um, not necessarily when it comes to the ballot box mm-hmm. and I think last time I checked at the time we we're recording this there was only three senators at a federal level and this out of I think it's 224 um including members of parliament that are under 34 years old wow only three yeah so it's it's um who are they so there's Jordan somebody right yeah I don't know exactly who they who they are yeah you're probably thinking of Jordan Steele is Um, he a Victorian he he's a he was a Greens okay um, I don't know who, who they are, but I just know that there's only three that are under 34 years old between the two houses. And mm. it's, um, it's you know, it's an issue because, uh, you know, uh, most laws that are implemented affect young people in some way, but the, there's not many young people that are actually involved in the process at that level. So Yeah. As I've grown older, I've started realising um, that to, b- not to, to, to not be political is really hard these days yeah. because everything that you do your like the things that you care about you know bodies all of these things are affected by yeah. politics and policy yeah that's right um and now i'm really understanding the importance of like knowing about politics yeah that's right but uh, yeah i i wish that when i was growing up i um had a better education about it mm. um, yeah and it's something that i feel so strongly about this next thing I'm going to say and I've been banging on about it for such a long time and is that politics for the most part is not taught in schools in Australia and you go and you do you know your VCE and you focus on getting your high ATAR and that's all well and good but you everyone needs to be taught the life skill of how to vote Mm. why we vote and how it works and I did legal studies because I had intentions of being a lawyer and I remember even in legal studies, which is a subject that it was meant to be taught in, it was like very high level. It was like there's two houses of parliament and this is what they do. But they never said that we have a preferential voting system and this is how it works. And in Australia, we don't have the first past the post voting system. Like we have a preferential voting system and it means you literally cannot waste your vote. Mm. But so many people don't know the power that, that comes with it. Mm. And I just really feel that 
it needs to be taught to young people at yeah. school because otherwise, I mean, most people aren't going to go and teach themselves the ins and outs of how politics works. Yeah. And when we have an obligation to vote and it's compulsory, there should be an obligation to be taught about it as mm. well. Yeah. Political history or uh, what political parties stand for or what the general right wing and left wing mean and all of these things are not really taught in in any useful detail unless people do like political science or politics at uni that's right but out of the voting population how many people will actually go to uni and study those things exactly and high school level like people that are leaving school will be voting in a couple of years yeah or eligible to start voting in a couple of years yeah well i voted the first election i voted in i was in year 12 i just right. turned 18 right and i remember being so excited about it because i was that kid but i remember most of my classmates were like could not care less about what their vote meant yeah and because we do live in a country we do live in a country where it's against the law to not participate it's not really fair to throw people out there without teaching them without, how it works yes we're not taught very many useful things at school i think yeah. about how the world works yeah. about how to critically think about media biases yeah. how to think about corporate uh, influence on our lives and our politics and governments like you learn how the political and the judiciary system work in Australia yeah. but those are really theoretical things yeah um, and you, you you learn about past prime ministers and stuff but you don't learn about how their politics really shaped or changed the climate exactly it's so true and I think a big thing that happened just before the election we've just been through is that Bob Hawke died. Yeah. And for the first time, I think, in their whole lives, young people learnt, like, the, his biggest legacy, which is in all of our wallets, in a Medicare card, and we take it for granted. You know, we have universal health care here in Australia mm. and it's because we voted in a government and a man who had a vision to make it happen. And I think that we sort of don't... Think about uh, the things that have come before us and, and how they happened and, uh, it, it you know, everything's under threat when we when we vote in conservative governments, like those big wins that we've got from, from good leaders. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so pardon my ignorance yeah. because I also apparently didn't receive much of an education on Bob Hawke. Yeah. Was he a um, Liberal or Labour? He was a Labour Prime Minister. Um, and I, I think that there's sort of a general consensus here in Australia that you can talk to any anyone here labor or liberal and i think you know we don't know who's listening to this podcast so uh you know just for as a bit of background a liberal him doesn't mean liberal what it means in most other places liberal means yes. conservative mm. and um if you talk to labor or liberal voters everyone will say bob hawke was the best prime minister we ever had uh and he is just you know he's he was really progressive and and left a, a strong legacy legacy and i i mean i remember that being young and you know having my medicare card when when i was on my you know parents one or got my own one and just not knowing where it came from and then when i learned i was like we're so lucky here like in, yeah. in other countries you have to pay for everything that you know you need to access in the health system and yeah it's just um it's just i think really important to obviously understand what parties stand for now but also what they've achieved in the past and how it's changed our lives absolutely we are lucky, and I um, I realize this so often when I travel, when I read the news from other countries, um, and 
I, f- I find it amazing what you just said about Bob Hawke and that people agreeing he was the best prime minister yeah. across the political spectrum in Australia, that that's so good compared to the climate we have now of yeah. just mudslinging yeah. and endless drama and melodrama coming out of politics. Even like how petty and terrible the current like election campaigning was. Yeah, we we really have quite lax laws on how you can campaign in elections. I know that other countries have laws that you can't mention the other party in your campaign, which I think is really great because then you win on policy and your vision, whereas... Not fear-mongering. That's right. And I think, I mean, the election we just had... I was obviously unhappy with the result and you probably were too, Amrita. Yes, I am very left. <laughs> yeah. I'm a lefty and I was very unhappy and I think this is a mistake. Yeah, and I, when you go back and look at the campaign that the the, the winning party won, um, ran, which is the Liberal Party, a lot of it was on, I mean, I hate to use a Trumpism, but it was on fake news. And they were saying things that were literally not untrue, but it's not against the law to to do. Or, I mean, it, it, it's teetering on this like gray area about whether or not you can do it and I think that's another big thing about why young people have an issue with politics is because it seems like a circus and I mean I'm 26 and in the past 11 years Australia has had six leadership challenges for the prime ministership and no Australian under 30 has ever voted for a prime minister who's lasted a full term so you can see how people just think why would I take this seriously? Yeah, like, it, they don't even take it seriously. Absolutely. Yeah, th- that is exactly how I feel. Like, uh, why do I even bother? Like, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand this endless crap that they're talking about. Yeah. And in, especially in this election, so many leaders of parties or MPs were themselves talking crap about their own party's policies. And, and then they're slinging each other. That... that uh, media frenzy and all of that noise yeah. really confuses people about what politics really means to them. Yeah, that's right. And I think if you're consuming only like political ads and not um, consuming policy, it's so easy to vote for the wrong party or yeah. not or the party that actually doesn't align with your views. And again, it sort of all goes back to that lack of education and awareness. Yeah. But I think that on the other hand, that young people aren't given enough credit for, you know, what they're capable of. So in 2017, which I'm sure you probably agree with me on this as well, Emrita, is we had a really awful and divisive postal survey on whether we should have marriage that, equality. That w- I can't even explain how yeah. how much all of us and me hated that yeah. bullshit. And it cost the taxpayer millions upon millions of dollars to do something that the majority of Australians already wanted and were shown they already wanted. But as a result of that, um, you had to be enrolled to vote to take part in it. So there was this huge increase in enrolment. And in fact, over 65,000 young people enrolled to vote because they cared about marriage equality so much. So I think that we are engaging with politics in some level, um, but it's, it's not translating to which party you should vote for. Mm. Um, They don't see the sort of tie between the issues they care about and the party that cares about them as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the parties, it it doesn't seem like they're fucking caring. Sorry for my language, (laughs) but I know. I'm really angry. It's like between the prime minister scolding young children for being politically involved, 
Yeah. And at the um, climate at the climate yeah. rally, it's like the prime minister is literally scolding the future voting pool for yeah. being aware of politics. Yeah. I actually, there was a Triple J survey not long ago that said only seven percent of adults under thirty are confident that Australians that politicians are working in the best interest of young people. Which, I mean, even though I love politics and I love engaging with it. Like, I, I agree with that as well. Like, I, I don't think that we have a government at the moment that represents my best interests or probably most people's best interests. No. So. Yeah, I agree. So what? So when the sense of uncertainty and fear um, overcomes us or when people just don't understand the need to be politically aware, what can what can we do to motivate ourselves to be more political and... Yeah. Um, yeah. And not fe- feel this fear and uncertainty. Yeah. So I think it comes back to what I said before about young people not being given enough credit. There's such a narrative in politics at the moment. And I think it's because, again, it's sort of, for the most part, um, our parliaments are run by dinosaurs who don't want young people to care about it. Because as soon as young people care about it, uh, we become more vocal and mobilised and hold them to account. And there seems to be this real narrative of making fun of young people or saying that we're entitled mm. and it's just so not true. Like the what a lot of things that millennials experience now is something that their generation has never had to go through. Like we we're talking before we started recording about home ownership and things like that. Mm. So but because of that narrative, I think a lot of young people have actually started to believe it mm. and feel worthless and, you know, what's the point in getting it? So I am a big believer in um, not shaming young people into yep. feeling like they, if they aren't politically engaged, but actually finding that ground of what's important to them. So ask young people what's important to them and, um, and then, you know, sort of point them to the resources that they need to understand why what's important to them is political and it translates to when you go to vote. So there's some really great sort of like quizzes you can take mm. uh, here in Australia. We've got something called Vote Compass run yep. by the ABC. I and did that. Yeah. And then another one called I Side With. Um, and then explaining to people who uh, don't quite understand. Um, a lot of people say, why would I vote for the party that I care about? Because there's no way that they're going to win, which, as I said, we have a preferential voting system, which means... If you're the person you vote for doesn't win, the vote flows to the next person that you number. Um, but there's a dollar value behind our vote, which a lot of people just don't realise. So if you vote for a politician that gets a certain quota of the vote, which is not that high, 4%, mm. they get funding from our electoral commission to mm-hmm. help them run a campaign next election. So your vote is actually worth money. Right. And in this like constant like political noise of like, you know, scare ads and, you know, um, all of the advertising that comes from the major parties, it can be really hard as sort of a smaller player to to make your voice and your message heard. So if even if the person you vote for doesn't win, but they are ambitious to be a politician, your vote can give them the money to run again at the next election and the election after that till eventually, you know, they do get a representative. And here in Australia, it's not uncommon to have minor parties in our parliaments. Like the Victorian parliament has... Uh, 11 crossbenchers from minor parties and there's a lot of minor parties in at a federal level as well Mm. um and a lot of independence this time as well that's right yeah and then i think the other thing is explaining to young people how the government of the day does have an impact on their personal lives Mm. i mean um most of the politicians that are in parliament now like the older men 
they got free tertiary education and we don't have that anymore. Yeah, no, I got free tertiary. No, I didn't get free, but I got a really good, uh, what was it called at that time? Yeah, was it Hex? Hex, was, yeah. yes, I had Hex. Yeah, so and then the very next year after me, that was scrapped and it became harder to access yeah. funded places. Yeah, so, and we've even, like, had recent calls for, un- like, tertiary education to be completely privatised, so you have to pay out of pocket. I mean, if I had to pay out, my, my Hex debt, because I also was able to access Hex, my Hex debt, which I'm still paying off, was uh, $65,000 by the time I finished my degree, and I couldn't have paid for that hmm. and my parents couldn't have paid for that and it's such a Americanization of yeah, our Yeah, you're going to have a people uh, burdened with student debt. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, it's not just education, it's it's health, um, our public health system. I mean, I spoke about Medicare. There's, there's, the past few elections has been, you know, discussions of, you know, rolling back what we get under Medicare, um, the right to protest, which I know is so important to young people. So, like I said before, that we might not, young people might not be as interested in politics in terms of the political parties, but more pe- more young people than ever are attending protests and um, engaging with the right to protest. And our government even has a, you know, can dictate on that. And particularly conservative governments ha- are constantly threatening winding back our right to protest. We spoke earlier on about vegan protests, um, which whether or, or not you agreed or disagreed with them, they were engaging in like the legal right to protest until they got moved on. Um, but since that, the prime minister who we've just re-elected, he said that in his first week of um, you know, being re-elected as prime minister, he will um, implement tighter restrictions on um, animal activism and protesting. And I think the important thing to note is that even if you don't agree with the way that they protested, we would be foolish to think that it's only going to impact one group of people. As soon as you roll back the rights of one group of people, mm. anyone is under threat. And the right to protest is so central to who we are in yeah, Australia yeah. and the things that we've won. Um, like you know, unions can't protest anymore. They mm. might It might even affect when they go on strikes and stuff That's like right. that. That's right. And I'm really, as um, a unionist, I'm really proud to see that the union movement has backed in you know, the actions of these protesters, not necessarily because they agreed with what they were saying, but because they know that the right to protest is sacred. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, with young people, it's just important to make them feel empowered mm. instead of confused and, you know, to give them the confidence to engage with the system in a meaningful way. Yeah. So at the election we've just gone through, um, the vote's still being counted, but I actually checked last night and there was 687,000 invalid or blank votes. Is that people just drawing dicks on their ballots? Yeah, <laughs> it can be that or it can be, you know, um, just drop, just going in, ticking your name off so you don't get a fine and then just dropping your sheets in the box with yeah. like, without putting anything on them. And I think that says a lot about how people feel about their vote. I mean, that's one in every 35 people not taking their vote seriously, yeah. which is... What a pity. Yeah, and it's and there is not one person of those 35 who, you know, wouldn't be affected by yeah. what, what our Yeah, I'm not going to shame those people because I think they just don't know... Exactly. ...the way in which politics affects their everyday lives. So, okay, let's make a list. Everything, healthcare, mm. clean air, 
the actual electricity that you can afford to get yeah. uh, in your housing house. Prices. Housing prices. Housing prices, a roof over your head. Yeah, that's um, right. All of these. Now, this whole thing about reproductive rights in um, yeah. in America. Yeah, I. It's it was quite weird going into this election because reproductive rights um, and scaling them back terrifies me. Um, so like at the time we were recording this, we're in the middle of this huge organized effort in the United States to what seems to be to not only criminalize abortion, but turn pregnant people and doctors into criminals. And I think what made me feel particularly hopeful about this election was that we had the opportunity to change the course and to do something here in Australia while that's going on overseas and say, Hey, no, actually we're going to do the opposite. And Labor, who lost the election and were predicted to win, they actually came out and said that they were going to have a huge, you know, overhaul of our um, abortion system and they were going to make them more accessible and affordable and in some cases free, which I just think is so important. But instead, we elected a Christian conservative, which, you know, um, like I said, I've got religious family, so it's not an attack on, on like religion, but he's Pentecostal and he's right wing. And that's quite terrifying to know that he would probably agree with what's going on in the US right now. I mean, he didn't agree with marriage equality. And even though his electorate supported it, he actually abstained from the 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 vote, even after we spent all that money that we spoke about before. So ScoMo didn't participate in that yeah. damn plebiscite? Yeah, he he um so when it got when the bill actually came to parliament, he um he abstained, which is incredibly poor form after they spent all that, you know, taxpayer money and and it was broken down to electorate on, you know, what they believed and he still didn't he's meant to represent the people in his electorate and he, he re- represented his own views which I think is what's so scary, scary about, you know, reproductive rights. And I think that, I mean, in the US, the restrictions on abortion have been passed by Re- Republican-dominated legislators. And um, the Republican Party are probably pretty similar to the Liberal Party here in mm. terms of, like, the range in views. They're conservative. And there's a ton of women coming out now with their stories using the slogan, like, you know me, like we need to mm. personalize this story. And I've been trying to say to people, you know me too. Like I've, I've had an abortion and mm. I don't think that I should have to tell people that. Um, but we're in this sort of political climate where yeah. you have to literally use your own body yeah. to make people um like to personalize the issue and make people understand it. So yeah, yeah, I, it's foolish to think that um, what ha- what's happening politically in other countries doesn't affect you, mm. because with the news, uh, people in in every country that watch that know what's happening in America now have an opinion mm-hmm. about abortion. That's right. Now that people are hearing all of this debate going on there, suddenly I'm sure that our peers around Australia. Uh, maybe like men are having all of these opinions all of yep. a sudden. Yep. And that is where we are having to now defend. Women are having to defend their bodies yeah. and politicize them. That's so true. And it's something I actually said it to my husband the other day that you see all these women coming out now. So, Like, I mean, it's one in three to one in four women will access abortion in their lifetime. So I always say to people, you love someone who's had an abortion. Mm. You just might not know about it. Absolutely. And, But I said to my husband, I said, it's so funny how, I mean, not funny, it's quite sad that you see these women coming out and saying, 
I've had an abortion and I don't really feel comfortable telling you, but now this climate is making me feel like I should. But you never see men going, hey, I've caused an unwanted pregnancy. Right. You never see men taking responsibility when Mm. it is, you know, equal parts responsibility. This is how much politics impacts us, that what's happening in another country can impact us. So if we, um, if if women, if people who have had abortions, um, whatever their gender identity might be, people who have had abortions, people who have had the or have the ability to be pregnant, if they don't politicize in Australia, if they don't politicize their bodies and they don't speak out, the people around them might have those values in their mind that, oh, abortion is bad and yep. women's bodies are ours to own. And somewhere down the track, that might affect how they vote for yep. policies in the next elections. Yeah. So this is how much politics affects us people. It affects us immediately what happens in our country but what happens around the world affects us too yeah it's so true because what whatever's going on in america i think sort of often translate to here in australia i mean we are sort of like siblings in a lot of ways and something that really bothers me i think that i need to say about this abortion debate is that some of them some of the laws that are being passed by states which thankfully look like they won't be constitutionally sound because of roe v wade um, but they include rape survivors and survivors of incest, mm, which mm. I agree is absolutely awful and those cases in particular need to be treated with compassion. Mm. But when we centre our argument around this, it sort of alters the true story of abortion and the true story of abortion is that most people aren't accessing them because you know they were sexually assaulted or raped or mm. they're a survivor of incest. It's because they fell pregnant and they didn't want to be. and. Yeah. By focusing on the like particularly bad scenarios, I think we create a divide and a narrative of abortion's okay under certain situations and in other times it's not. And um, I think we sort of more need to be progressing towards abortion is a legitimate medical procedure Mm. and people don't need to tell you why that they're doing it. Um, I think we need to start seeing women's bodies as human bodies and not just like women and their role as creators mm. and the sacred unborn child. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, we're like the body that is pregnant is an organism. Yeah. It has something growing inside it and it is a host yeah. and it has the choice and the right yeah. to terminate whatever else is inside it. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's it's quite amazing because if you sort of were trying to force someone to be an organ donor or a blood donor, people yeah. would say, you know, that's such a breach of your bodily autonomy but mm-hmm. so many people still see women or pregnant people as, as incubators yeah and I get I think the reason I bang on about this so much is because I mean I'm from Victoria and I accessed an abortion in East Melbourne and um it's it's legal here we have the Victoria has the most progressive abortion laws in the state is there anywhere in Australia where it's illegal yeah so it's a crime in New South Wales what it's in the Crimes Act and okay so okay so I was actually wrong that you know this this doesn't really affect us in Australia yeah. this actually does affect yeah, us in Australia so there's still a big fight to decriminalize abortion in New South Wales it only became decriminalized in Queensland in 2018 at the end of last year and even in the areas where it is legal there's a such a big difference between legal and accessible and I guess a good example of that is Tasmania which is you know, for people that don't know Australia, our little island sort of underneath the big island that you have to cross the sea to get to, but it's still part of Australia. And abortion is legal there. But the last private clinic closed um, 
a year or so ago. So if you are a Tasmania, Tasmanian and you want access abortion, you have to come to the mainland. So you need to add travel costs and um, you know accommodation costs on top of the cost of getting an abortion, which leads me to the cost. And I mean, the average abortion in Australia costs between $400 and $600. Wow. I mean, young people don't have a lot of disposable income or anyone sort of in this age of you know, mm-hmm. wage stagnant stagnation, mm-hmm. that's a lot of money. And um, Well, yeah, like if you don't want to have a child because you can't afford to have a child, then how the hell are you going to afford to have an abortion? That's right. And I, it's, it's um, I mean, you can access some terminations on the public health system, but in most cases it involves you having to wait for a spot. And, I mean, if you're pregnant and you don't you want to you be. You don't have much time. Yeah, who, who wants to wait? And... I mean, I don't think anyone makes a decision lightly. Um, so you sort of want to get it sorted once you have made that decision. And so if you're not accessing a surgical abortion in a clinic, the other option is a medical abortion, which is using um, a, a little drug. And um, it costs $12 to manufacture, right? Um, but it costs on average $500 to buy. Um, so it's it's not, you know, an ex- it's not particularly accessible. And when I talk about this, I love to point out that... Um, Conversely, Viagra is on the PBS and drugs are on the PBS are decided by politicians and Viagra costs $6.20 for a packet. Oh, my God. And, but if, you want, if you're a pregnant person and want to access a termination for a drug that costs, you know, almost the same amount to make, it's going to cost you hundreds upon hundreds what? of dollars. It's, okay, so this is something that could affect nearly half of the population of this country and this is something that nobody is stupid enough really to or very few people i would say would take this decision lightly yeah so this is really people telling us that hey you need to think twice or thrice or four times before you have an abortion we can't trust you with your own body and your own decisions yeah i mean it's mind-boggling on so many levels that it's not like I'm asking you to let me buy some kind of weapon. Yeah. I'm asking you to let me buy a pill that will help me end the pregnancy that's my body. Yeah, and I think a really important thing to note about that is that we haven't spoken about, which so many people don't realise, is that criminalising abortion does not stop abortion. It it, it just doesn't. So abortion no. has existed since, you know, the dawn of time and the only thing that comes with um, decriminalization is safety and for people that call themselves pro-life I like to say anti-choice but if you are pro-life then the life of the pregnant person should be paramount mm-hmm. and by you know decreasing their options when they fall pregnant you're actually putting like a real already existing human's life at risk, at risk and yeah. um, I'm actually not sure the reasons why but when abortion is decriminalized and made accessible less people actually start to access it and I'm not sure if it's because it become it comes with like a wave of education and people understand you know ways that you can avoid it happening in the first place but everybody wins when it's accessible and in New South Wales you can get an abortion if not one but two doctors sign off that you right, right, right. could be mentally or physically impacted by the pregnancy now doctors don't have to um they can turn you away for religious reasons. So it can be like a, um, you know, a gamble on if you just go and visit your like local clinic or whatever and you want this doctor to sign off on it, they could turn you down and then you have to go to another one and another one until you find two doctors who will say you can do this thing. Um, 
And when I say it's a crime, it's not just like a crime on, you know, an old act that hasn't been changed. Um, In the past two to three years, there's been at least three people in New South Wales that have been charged under it um, for desperate situations. Like I've spoken about, one of them was a teenage girl who didn't want to tell her family, so um, bought a abortion drug online and she got caught and she got charged under the Crimes Act in New South Wales. So it's actually still affecting people. Yeah. Like it's it's in effect. It's not just one of those laws that, you know, they haven't gotten around to changing. Um, so, yeah, I really encourage people to sort of get involved in the the push to, to you know, make it legal in New South Wales. There was, so, there was a big campaign to get it done in Queensland um, and yeah, it still hasn't happened in, in New South Wales. And then in South Australia as well, it is accessible. Um, in a, it is sort of technically legal, but you can only access it in a hospital, in a public hospital, mm. which again makes people often travel interstate or find other means to do it because yeah. there's only so many spots in public hospitals. Um, here in Victoria, um, we sort of have a really progressive government at the moment and they actually passed safe access zones, um, which put a limit on how close protesters can be to clinics. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't exist when I when I got mine. And you said a really important point before that, you know, um, people don't take the decision lightly. And after I had mine, I was waiting in the waiting room and um, I saw a woman entering and she had a pram and um, she got harassed and sh- she broke down on the street. She was crying and she actually turned away and she pushed this. She, she had a pram with her and she pushed the pram away. And I always think about what happened to her, but it's something else that a lot of people don't talk about in the abortion debate is that they see it as like irresponsible people who have made a silly decision and haven't tried to avoid it. But the most common person to access an abortion is a mother who already has at least one child who's making a really difficult decision. And mm. to say that, you know, the it's just people who aren't, you know, taking it seriously is frankly quite offensive. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody knows better than the mother of or the potential mother of a child whether she can take care of that kid or not. That's right. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry that uh, that you had that experience that sitting there and already on probably one of the hardest days of your life. Absolutely, yeah. And making a decision that's probably not for you. It's for, you know, if you're already a mother or a parent, um, it's making a choice for someone else who you have a responsibility to that literally already exists, yeah. which I th- is so much more important. You know, I also say, I mean, there's so many memes going on on the Facebook, like we care about the unborn child in your body unless it's gay or unless it's black yeah. or unless it's trans <laughs> or unless it's Muslim. Yeah, It's such bullshit. It is political. It is nothing but politics and it is nothing but subjugation. It's so true. People with a uterus, people with the ability to become pregnant and people who are pregnant. Yeah, that's so true. And it definitely seems if someone falls pregnant and, um, you know, has the child and then decides well, they can't work now, they need to go on the single parent payment or they need to go on new start, then they're, you know, a welfare bludger and, oh. you know, using my taxpayers' money to, to um, you know, be lazy because they don't want to work. It's like, for the most part, you can't win. <laughs> so you are right now working in politics yourself? Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, chief of staff to a 
crossbencher, who which means they are a representative from a minor party um, in the Victorian Legislative Council, so um, the Victorian Parliament. He's from the Animal Justice Party, which is very cool for me because um, it means that I'm getting paid to do um, work for animals. Wow, a chief of staff. Yeah. That sounds so cool. Yeah, I think for people that have watched like political TV shows and stuff, they're like, oh, it's like must be like so much drama and power and it's not really like that, it's but not, it is cool. <laughs> is it just like a, a, a really dry day? Yeah, I mean, uh, we do a lot of cool and fun stuff and, um, you know, vote on a lot of interesting like legislation um very cool for me because um it means that I'm getting paid to do um work for animals which is you know I think everyone's dream and I've been working on sort of um legislative change for animals in a volunteer capacity for quite a long time now Mm. that it's it's really quite exciting to be able to do it that's right you were behind that very good and important bill to ban puppy factories. Yeah, in, yeah. And now it's a legislation. Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm vice president of a group called Oscars Law, mm. um, which was started by an amazing woman called Deborah Tranter. We campaigned in 2014 at the state election to uh, get the opposition, who was the Labor Party, who were looking like that were going to win and form government to um, make a commitment to... Um, ban the sale of puppies in pet shops and um, end puppy farms in some sort of way, Um, which they did. And um, it was sort of quite a bit of a shit show getting it done um, because it was a really hard parliament to pass legislation through um, because there was quite a few sort of right-wing independent and minor politicians whose vote they needed to get it across. Um, But it ended up passing um, at the end of 2017. And then the um, sale of puppies in pet shops came into effect. um, The ban on it came into effect on July 1st. And then July 1st of every year, something sort of new rolls in um, that implements the legislation incrementally. And Mm -hmm. by July 1st, 2020, it'll be completely rolled out. Yay! Yeah. Thank you for doing that. It was... um, it was very exciting to be involved in it. Like, I feel like I, you know, obviously, as I said, it's been going on for a long time. So I, the part I played in it, I considered it to be quite small, but it was fun to be yeah. and exciting to be like in the thick of it when it happened. And, and, and the, the pinnacle of that, achieving the goal, I can imagine. Yeah, and yeah. Parliament sat so late trying to get it passed and then they had to extend to sit for an extra day to get it done. It sat till like midnight. So mm. It was really just like a cliffhanger, like hanging on on those final moments to see whether it would pass or not. So oh, exciting, yeah, political yeah, so drama. It's been really cool because um, <clears throat> it was really popular with the public. So a lot of other um, governments uh, are taking it on as policy now. So WA is about to do the same thing. Oh, good. Yeah, which is really awesome because we've always said that, um, unfortunately, the thing with puppy farms being a state issue um they can't be sort of dictated by federal legislation. So every time states implement new laws, puppy farmers can move into state. So we've always been so firm that this is only just the beginning. We need national consistency. We need every state government and yeah. parliament to do this. Is Andrew's government Labor government? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And um, I mean, they've got a lot of work to do. They still need to ban duck shooting and, and yes. other things. But um. I really think they're a great progressive government that are doing some really yeah, cool things. Yeah. I do too. I think that they are really um, doing a 
like trying to solve many things at once. Yeah. Um, economy wise, environment wise. So they they've got like their fingers in many good progressive pies. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And it's sort of federal election, um, federal Labor tried to do sort of similar to what they did at the state election, you know, really good progressive policies and announcing them, but it just didn't seem to, you know, sell or cut through. But um I think here in Victoria we are sort of quite a progressive state and mm. um you know we believe in things that maybe uh other states haven't sort of come to the conclusion on yet but like we have things like you know voluntary assisted dying and yeah medicinal that's cannabis another really and, good thing that andrew's government yeah, did yeah safe injecting rooms and you know yes. which was controversial but i can say as you know the wife of a paramedic how that sort of changes the lives of and saves the lives of so many vulnerable people so yeah it's, it's really cool seeing the stuff they get done and being in not in the same party, but, um, you know, being in the same parliament and working with them on trying to get good things done for animals. Okay, but okay, talking about animals, yeah, I find it so interesting and aberrant as well that politics, especially like men's politics, plays out against the bodies of women and then the bodies of animals. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. <laughs> You know, it's like these are just pawns or, you know, a cog in their worldview. Yeah. For example, there's a party called the Fishers and Shooters and Farmers Party, right? And that's a conservative party. Yeah. Wow. You're defining your entire ethics and your entire values by fishing and shooting. Like, what the hell? Yeah. It's all against the bodies of animals like define it by your own values define it like define it by in human terms yeah that's right but no it's some kind of strange chauvinism yeah yeah it's that's exactly right and um there's actually a shooter representative in the um parliament that i work in and um he's actually our neighbor in the offices and yeah we have wildly different views and um on everything um he tried to get um tried to move a motion recently for women to be able to carry uh, non-lethal like weapons as a form of protection protection and sort of use the examples of two tragic murders of women in Melbourne um, as the justification for doing it. And, um, you know, we tried to say that we don't support it because um, those two women were uh, attacked and assaulted before they even knew anyone was following them. But so it wouldn't have made a difference to their lives, but also, that um, the way to fix this isn't by, you know, arming women. Mm. It's by changing men mm. and um, changing the views and the thoughts and just the little subtle things that men do and say that, you know, creates this culture of toxic masculinity and violence. And um, and they obviously didn't agree with this at all. But something that I find so humbling about politics is that we do not agree on probably most things. Um, but... When I talk to him as a person, um, he's he's a lovely guy and his staff are really nice. And Mm. I just think, you know, it makes me feel like everyone is, um, you know, everyone has good in them. And it's sort of just, you know, us applying that at a, you know, political level that, you know, helps people rather than hinders them. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for certainly for animals, we don't agree. And probably everything that we're trying to get done in Parliament, you know, for the next three or four years, he's not going to support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
Animal rights is a fairly recent concept yep. in the history of human civilizations. Yeah. And one might argue like it's an arbitrary uh, thing that now we're deciding to care for animals or their yeah. welfare. Yeah. But women's rights is a fairly recent concept too. Yeah. Uh, and so if we're fighting for the rights of women, how incredibly um, selfish of us to only consider the, that this this new area, this progressive area of thought is acceptable and let's support it because it's to do with humans. Yeah. But thinking about animal rights is just too frou-frou. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. So I'm a really big believer in like in the like theory of intersectionality mm. that um, you know you shouldn't prop up one movement at the expense of another, or um, um, you should believe that uh, every you know progressive movement has intersects that relate to each other. And something that is relatively new, like you say, is that um, incorporating animal protection into that as well. Mm. But animal protection says so much about us as. A society mm. that I think a lot of people just don't quite understand yet. Uh, the relation between violence to animals that can often um, turn into violence in other, you know, aspects of life. The way that we sort of don't understand the way that we treat animals and the impact that has on the climate. Um, it's sort of, yeah, it is relatively new. And I think by progressives especially, it can be quite confronting and Mm. offensive for Mm. them for us to say to them that you should consider animals and often people take it as you should consider animals because they're just as important or just as equal to us whether or Mm. not you agree with that is one thing but that doesn't need to be why it's that they are um you know beings that can feel pain and suffer that you know should Mm. have charge of their own lives and for the most part they don't so mm, absolutely it's not saying they're the same as us yeah um, yeah and and no but th- this is offensive to people to liken ourselves to animals yeah. but if you actually look at that they're very real parallels to the way the exploitation plays out in yeah. the against animals and against women or against gay and trans people or other marginalized people yeah um exploitation is the is the common thing over here and there are hidden mechanisms so for example just now we talked about how um, pharmaceutical companies are making big bucks out of the uh, um, medication for abortions Um, and very few people know about that but that's because they can get away with it in the same way entire like economies are propped up on the backs of animals yep. and people don't know where their food is coming from or people didn't know that puppies and pet shops are coming from puppy factories. Yep. So this exploitation that happens in hidden ways or in less obvious ways yep. is common across everyone that is at the moment not men in power. Yeah, hmm. it's so true. And I think that um, like going back to what I said before about um about you know this being particularly confronting for progressives as well is that we and it's also similar to what I said earlier about vegetarianism and not liking veganism is that when you're confronted by another thing that you mm. should care about yeah it's like god where does this end yeah um and when you're a progressive person you consider yourself to be on the right side of history and then when you're suddenly the person being protested mm. that's causing this thing yeah uh it can be hard to swallow mm. so i think that um 
you know, we need to, the progressive movement really needs to unify on animal protection because by unifying on animal protection, we're unifying on all of our causes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The intersectionality, yes, you're right. When we start looking at the ways in which um, the hidden mechanisms of exploitation, then everything comes into light. Yeah. Uh, and then we start becoming a fairer society. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there's things in animal protection that go beyond um, just, you know, the treatment of animals. There's, you know, there's in just like in all forms of food production, there's massive elements of human exploitation. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the way that often vulnerable and, or migrant workers can be treated in, um, you know, food production industries, whether it be factory farms or slaughterhouses, um, it's it's you know the safety in the workplaces there's so many elements that yeah food safety as well exactly right and i think we spoke about it sort of briefly earlier um there's so many parallels between what we do to animals and the climate yeah. that um a lot of people are still sort of learning to wrap their heads around yeah yeah well okay this is the so, so the climate now is like the biggest thing yeah that is affecting us yeah and I have, I am so angry to see that this, it's being, there's like a binary, it's either climate or it's economy. Mm-hmm. And it's being sold to people that these two are mutually exclusive. Yep. You can either care about one or the other. Yep. And this idea that real Aussies, you know, hardworking, salt of the earth people, they care about jobs. Yep. And they really, they care about feeding themselves and they care about housing and the climate is for like, like rich people or in Fitzroy like, and the Inner North. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like bloody lefties to care about socialists and you yeah. know people that can afford to care about the climate. No. Yeah. And I I hate the fact that you know that these people in power are trying to peddle this stupid idea because climate is everything. Yeah, that's right. Without air to breathe, without a t- a suitable amounts of like temperature that you can walk outside and work. Jobs don't matter. Jobs don't matter. Yeah, that's right. And <clears throat> it was quite interesting to see at the federal election that we've just been through that um, Adani became sort of this, um, you know, huge discussion about whether this Adani, you know, coal mine should go ahead. And um, it was incredible to see after the election that Adani became this like more than just this one coal mine it became like this representation of jobs yeah but then after the election um you know the people starting this mega mine are saying bragging about how automated it is and that it's actually only going to create just over 1000 jobs when they went oh. into the election saying it would create 10000 jobs mm. so i just really think that um like jobs i'm so like I'm staunchly a unionist and I know the importance of jobs and good secure work has on people's lives but as you say good secure work will become redundant when we have a planet that's not you know Mm. that we can't habitate anymore and right well we've made huge technological leaps and over the last 20 years we've made them every year yeah but people still have jobs it's not like people are now more unemployed than they were uh, compared to the smaller populations like 15, 20 years ago, whatever. Yeah. Like, yes, unemployment levels rise and fall, but generally, as technologies change, people still find jobs to yeah. do, right? Yeah, and it's what's most interesting is about this 
sort of real um, pushback against sort of phasing out of coal and into renewables to me is, one, there's still jobs in renewables. Mm. Um, and two, industries in Australia, rightly or wrongly, have regularly sort of disappeared. I mean, we saw the last car being produced in Australia. Yeah, yeah, not long ago, which is obviously heartbreaking and, you know, quite shameful that it happened. Um, but it's just something that seems to happen. And while in that case, you know, with the cars, I don't agree with it happening, but when it's, um, you know, coal and it's damaging our environment and it's, you know, creating a planet that our kids can't potentially live on, we need to do something to address it. It's beyond me why this man, this bloody ScoMo, is... Who took a piece of coal into parliament. I know. (laughs) I wanted to bash him on the head yeah. with that piece of coal. And shame on this Adani person, right? Yeah. In India, uh, as I understand, and I could be wrong, but I will fact check myself later, but as I, I believe that there are very few or no uh, um, coal-powered power plants coming yeah. up. Yeah. And there's like only... Um, renewable energy sources are now propping up coming up in power plants and there's across asia there's a lot more awareness about um solar panels for example bangladesh has a very high rate of solar panels even in slum areas where Mm. people put solar panels on the roof yeah all of this is happening and then this man just wants to come here to australia and make more money by mining for coal yeah when they could use all of their technology all of their know-how to generate power in other ways like people still need electricity i mean this is australia we are like the perfect we're the perfect country for solar power like right you know it's the driest continent you think of australia and you think of sun yeah and we're not doing anywhere near as much as we can in terms of you know renewable energy and solar and things like that but um i'm really keen because we've obviously this was the climate election and yes. you know the party that was best for climate didn't win um so now we've got three years of probably little to no movement on climate in fact there's people in this government who don't believe climate change is a thing they don't believe the science on it um so i just think that it's really important that people understand you know the things that they can do in their personal lives to you know they might seem small and incremental but the more people that do it, it still has an impact on, you know, um, the planet while we wait for a government that will actually take real change at like a national level yeah. to do something about climate change. Yeah, the government <clears throat> sorry. The government is failing us, so now we gotta do it ourselves. Mm. We have to understand the importance of climate. We have to see through the um the hogwash of jobs yep. uh, and understand that actually we won't live if there isn't a climate, a suitable climate on this planet. You're very fearless. Yeah, I I like to think, (laughs) I mean, I would like to say that about myself, but I'm actually not, but I know the importance, especially as a woman, of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zones and... Um, you know, taking up space and, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, doing things that you might not... Like, I think every progressive campaigner's dream is to be out of work. Um, 
because we do this work because we care about it, not because, you know, it's necessarily being paid for it is great. But, um, you know, it would be my dream to not have to do this. Yeah. Um, but I push myself to do it and put myself in situations where I might not necessarily be comfortable because I know that someone has to do it. Mm to get that outcome so yeah, yeah um we were talking about the alexandra ocasio-cortez yes. uh, documentary and you said you cried when yes. you watched that why did you cry i think because um women are so underrepresented in politics particularly young women particularly young women of color so seeing her you know challenge this dude who like you say you're talking about corruption before like so many issues in his campaign like he was basically buying his seat for years and then come the election like just pork barreling which is when you just you know promise money for things which she obviously can't do and seeing someone win an election based on their values and their policy and their beliefs and who they are up against someone who's basically just got a shitload of money restores my faith in you know that people can use their vote yeah. in a strong way. And I, it was that scene at the end where, you know, she goes to, I, they're like equivalent of Parliament House. It's called like the Congress building yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Um, Capitol Hill, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, and seeing her tell the story about when her dad took her there, it just like yeah. hit me that, you know, she obviously as a young woman was told that she could achieve this for herself and, and she actually did it. So. Yeah. Uh, that was so profound when she said that her dad told her that this belongs to her. Yes. For me, as a third culture kid, or, you know, what they call a third culture kid, whereas I was born in one country, I grew up in another country, and now I s- lived in, and now I'm settled in another country. I never felt that uh, political representation, agency, sense of ownership over my citizenship, nationality, over my government. Yeah. But I feel it now. Yeah. Uh, because I've, I mean, I've decided that now I'm Australian and, the, you know, this is what I need. But people aren't taught taught that, what her dad taught her, that no. this belongs to you. Yeah. And I love to say it about my job now is like my husband often jokes about how, you know, like I'm the, he calls me like chief and I'm like the big boss. And it's like, actually... No, I work for you. Like, I work for every voting person. That's who I work for. And it was the same when I was um, a union official. I worked for the members. Like, they were my boss um, and I represented them. And I think so many people don't see that side of politics, that politicians work for you. Yes. And we need to remind them of that. Yeah, they are out there representing our interests. I think people didn't realise just how much the politicians are actually representations of us. They're not these strange other beings up there that run the country. If we have more input into what they do, if we really go and shake them up, they will work for us. That's right. And I think something that a lot of people, young people don't realise as well, um, is they see politics as this like old boys club, which it is. But it is that way because these you know, men have had the confidence to inject themselves into politics. And the more young people that are engaging with politics, participating in politics, joining political parties, becoming active, the more young people will actually be elected as representatives and as politicians. Um, and anyone can do that. That's what that's what some 
comes with being in a democratic cu- country that you can participate in the system and you can put yourself in the system if you if you really want to mm. which i think is you know really important and um like we sort of spoken a little bit about the rise of right-wing politics yeah i wanted to talk about that yes yeah. go on and i just think that um here in you know with here in australia um you know we have really racist and right-wing parties like one nation and then there's senators like Power fraser united Anning, and fraser Anning. thank god the one good thing to come out of that election was fraser ending lost his seat mm. um but it's so easy you know we've got trump and then there was brexit and yeah, I, yeah i've made a list here of some really big economies in the world that have currently got um, right-wing um, governments, US, obviously, but also Brazil, India, UK, and Australia. Yeah. Is it true that, like, the elected leader in India once, like, approved a massacre or something in 2002? There's or? a lot of conspiracy theories uh, that uh, Narendra Modi, who is the Prime Minister of India, when he was the Chief Minister of the State of Gujarat, he... Um, turned a blind eye and didn't take action immediately when there were uh, religious protests and rioting between Hindus and Muslims. Right. And it led to the massacre of a lot of Muslim people. But because he's from uh, a right-wing Hindu-based party, there is a lot of speculation that he could have done something quickly in the day to stop the protests, but he turned a blind eye and let them go on for a while before right. then taking some token actions and stepping in to save the day so to speak. So a lot of people believe that he has the murder of a lot of Muslim people on his yeah, head. Yeah. But even without that, he is very pro-Hinduism and India is a secular country, yeah. but it is really becoming a very Hindu country yeah. at the moment. And I'm such a strong believer in um, removing religion from politics. It's mm-hmm. got no place in politics. Nope. I mean, the parliament that I work in gets up every day that they sit in parliament. The first thing they do is the Lord's Prayer, and there is politicians in that parliament of so many different religions, and then there's, you know, atheists and agnostic people, and it's it's religion just has no place in it. Religion yeah. has no place in lawmaking, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think with the rise of these, you know, right-wing politics, is it's so easy to say, you know, I don't recognise my country anymore, I feel like I've woken up in a different country, and it's... I think by the point we're at now, this is wrong to say that because it's not new now and we need to stop being pretending or actually being stunned by these electoral defeats because it's, you know, the first time maybe you'll say, how could this possibly happen? But when we're in the third term of a Liberal government, it's not how could this possibly happen? It's what can we do to change it? Yeah. Or what aren't we doing because of which this is happening? Yeah, and I think it's sort of really easy to act like Australia wasn't racist, you know, until the past few years, but just the way that it's communicated has changed. I mean, we're a country that's built on, you know, like a massacre. Um, You know, we're colonisers and um, the way that we've sort of occupied this land is, you know, racist and that the things that we've done... Um, since, you know, since Australia was formed, have been inherently racist. It's just that I think since the election of right-wing leaders, people feel more confident to spread their poison in a more overt and open way. Mm. Um, But it's definitely not a new thing. Mm. It's, It's instead of acting like we're surprised because we're personally not like that, we need to do the things 
to actually change it and to help people understand that they shouldn't think that way. Yeah, so. I, I, after talking to you, I'm really inspired to become a more political person because at this point in human history, we can't afford not to be. That's exactly right. We're so close to so many good things happening, but for some reason they're slipping back. Yeah. Plus, like, you know, like women's rights are slipping back. But also there's very big new threat of climate change. Yeah. And we just have to become more political people. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, um, it can be overwhelming at first to try and inject yourself into it. But I, this has been a journey for me. I'm still learning new things every day. And the sooner you start, you know, the sooner you're going to start to understand. And any sort of progress or education you can make for yourself is good progress. Oh, man, Georgie, this has been the most mind expanding, but also hope inducing conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming and educating us and teaching us a little bit about hope and giving us a good pep talk. Yeah. Um, I really wish you all the best in your political career. Can I please like see you running for <laughs> <laughs> for prime minister one day? It's so funny you say that because um, my I've got this group chat with my friends, which is like really wholesome, and often when someone's having a bad day someone will write something nice about everyone. And my friend wrote in there the other day about me. Um, She said, Georgie, you know that I'm only half joking when I say that you'll be prime minister one day. So I was like, yeah, so so nice. What's the minimum age to become a um, run for prime minister? You can run run for politics as soon as you become voting age. Okay, cool, cool, cool. There's no reason why we couldn't have an 18-year-old prime minister one day. (gasps) Yes. <laughs> or you could pull a Jacinta Ardern and in the next 10 yes. years or something like that. I know, like that. bless her. It's so sad that she's so close yet so far to what we've got going on here. I know, <laughs> I know. but we, no, we, have to, we have to turn our country into a good country. That's right. It's and I, on us. Yes, and I saw post the election a lot of people saying, I'm going to New Zealand and, it's, and it's, I just find that stuff so frustrating because it's quite like elitist and mm. wrong. And it's like, no, we need to fix what we have going on here for Australian people. This is a democracy, people. It's us. It's our responsibility to fix what's going wrong over there. Whip it into shape. Yes, that's right. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Georgie. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey, hey.